Hey, folks. Hello. My name is Ellen Adair. And I am Eric Gildy. And welcome to Take Me Into the Ball Game. Yeah. In an effort to bring the entire Take Me Into the Ball Game project into one feed, we are going to be releasing our old episodes on Pitcher List week by week. Yes. Enjoy for the first time or revisit an old favorite. And so now, this is one of them. <laughs> Take Me Into the Ball Game, subtitled Rating Baseball Movies on the 20 to 80 Scouting Scale. Take Me Into That Ball Game. Do it! <laughs> uh, my name is Ellen Adair. And I am Eric Gildy. And we are two actors who decided to watch or rewatch baseball movies given the current lack of actual baseball with this global pandemic that you may have heard about. Yeah, we still need our baseball fix, even with no baseball. And this seemed like a very good way of going about that. Yes. So that is exactly how qualified we are to do this. We are just people who needed a baseball fix. And so then we decided we would rate them on a few categories on the 20 to 80 scale used for baseball prospects. If you're not familiar, 20 is way bad. 50 is average productive major leaguer. So that's good, actually. 50 means, hey, you reached the major leagues. Oh, if I could only be a 50. If I could only be a 50 is also how I feel. And then 80 is like Hall of Fame. Level best count. of the best. Best of the best. So today we are going to be talking about not only one of my favorite baseball movies, but one of my favorite movies. Oh, it's a good one. Of all time. And that is A League of Their Own. of their own it is so so wonderful so this is a movie that came out in 1992 directed by penny marshall and written by lowell gans and babalu mandel lowell gans and babalu mandel they're such an amazing team they've done a ton of things together including movies right around the same time as a league of their own that are all-time classics in my book such as city slickers and parenthood as well as things like night shift and the money pit which was Kind of a guilty pleasure of mine from the 80s. So many, many, many things that it's so great to see them at the top of their game in this. Penny Marshall, of course, is an amazing, iconic, comedic personality across TV and film. Probably most famously known as Laverne in Laverne and Shirley in her TV days. I, I think that was her first touch with fame. And had also uh, started a directing career kind of midway through the 80s. This is her fourth film. She did a film, uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash, with Whoopi Goldberg that I think was not very well received. But then her film after that was Big, which was the first film directed by a woman to gross more than $100 million domestically at the box office. Oh, Penny Marshall, what a dreamboat. Oh, what a dreamboat. Her movie after that was Awakenings, which was a Best Picture nominated film. And one of those weird cases where the Best Picture nominee, doesn't get a Best Director nominee, but a really fantastic film in its own right. Not as much baseball in that one, but a lot more sad Oliver 
Stacks inspired <laughs> memory <laughs> stuff. Uh, so, so coming off of that, and these were all like just a couple of years apart, A League of Their Own comes out in 1992, is a huge hit, also is over $100 million at the box office. And this details the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League with a incredible ensemble with Gina Davis, Lori Petty, Tom Hanks, Madonna, Rosie O'Donnell, John Lovitz, Gary Marshall, who's Penny's brother, David Strathairn, Bill Pullman, so many others. And this is one of those films that so many people were allegedly attached to it. There were so many people in talks to play this role or that role. It's maybe not interesting to go through all of them, although there was an interview with Bob Costas in which Penny Marshall had mentioned that Demi Moore was originally in talks to play Gina Davis's role of the star catcher Dottie Hinson, but the film took so long to get made that Moore was pregnant by the time that production came around and said that it was a case where Bruce Willis literally screwed her out of a job. Bruce. Uh, scores by Hans Zimmer. Madonna, who's in the film, had her song This Used to Be My Playground, which I think was a hit. But It's neither my favorite Madonna song nor my favorite thing about this movie. The song does not appear on the soundtrack for contractual reasons, I guess. And that seems in line with some of the Madonna-related tension and stories that existed So what I would like to add on to the plus-plus informations that you gave us... Yes! um, ...is that there are actually a couple of women who are responsible for the story of this film, and they are Kim Wilson and Kelly Candele. I might be mispronouncing that. That's okay. Um, But it's nice that along with a couple of gentlemen responsible for the screenplay, we have a couple of women also responsible for bringing us this female-centric story. Nice. So now we're going to move along to our categories. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. So our first category is amount of baseball in this film. And I have to say there is quite a bit of baseball. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go with a 65. I think that this movie does such a good job of balancing the baseball as well as the stories of the people playing it. And I, I think that the ratio is right. For this film. So I say 65, thinking that that's actually a really good place for it to be. I know that when <laughs> when they were casting, I don't think probably for all of the stars, but for a lot of the other people in the movie, Penny Marshall definitely wanted people who could show baseball acumen or some athleticism. And so that was, I think, part of the audition process. I think that was the process for everybody. Oh, really? At least from what I know or what I've read. The legend is that Gina Davis was a semi-last-minute replacement for her part. Right. But that she went to Penny Marshall's backyard and, like, threw a baseball around with her because she wanted to be sure that she had some athletic ability. Of course, she was not cast strictly because she was able to play baseball, but, like, Lori Petty, who is incredibly athletic, I think partly was cast owing to her baseball ability as well as her, you know, excellent acting ability. Although apparently Rosie O'Donnell was hands down the best of the bunch in terms of pure athletic skills. I think that she grew up with brothers and played baseball with them. The trick where she throws two balls and they each go to different players is something that I think an All-American Girls Professional Baseball League alum taught her on set. And I think that that's part of the reason 
aside from just a kind of friendliness and maybe a little opposites attracting, I think part of the reason that she and Madonna became very good friends on set was that Madonna worked really hard, but still wasn't quite progressing with her baseball as well as some of the other people. And I think that she kind of went to Rosie O'Donnell for help and took her under her wing. And Rosie O'Donnell had been in entertainment for a really long time, but she hadn't really been in the movies. And so she was really excited too. And I think that the energies fed off of each other and they just had like a mutual girl crush that lasted for a very long time. Oh, that's so delightful. Yeah. So my score for this category is 70. Nice. Yes, maybe yeah. maybe surprisingly, I'm actually going to give this a better amount of baseball score than Eric because I'm usually the one griping about there not being enough baseball in the movie. And I'm usually inflating my grades like an idiot. I'm not a good scout, guys. I'm really trying to I'm really trying to make it, but but I just get overly enthusiastic. It's the kind of dog in me that just sees a ball and thinks it's probably the best ball without really remembering <laughs> balls of years past. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see what you think of my grades once I fax these in. Um, <laughs> whether everybody's like, is this legit, Ellen? Anyway, I mean, I think that 70 was also what I scored for Major League, and I think there's a sort of a comparable amount of baseball in a league of their own to Major League. Obviously, any baseball movie is going to have scenes that are not baseball. One thing about this movie, as well as Major League, that you maybe can't say about Pride of the Yankees, though, is that a lot of the non-baseball scenes still contain some sort of baseball context. There are scenes of them on the bus. There are scenes of them in the housing with the chaperone, which was a part of the baseball experience for people in that league in the time, as opposed to Pride of the Yankees, which has scenes that are not really related to baseball. And they're also just at home or, you know, with with mom or or with Eleanor somewhere that don't even have a kind of tangential relationship to baseball. Yeah, yeah. And it, like, it's not like I want to get ahead of ourselves to other baseball movies. Ooh, don't get ahead of yourself. I, I do feel like it's also not like in, for example, For the Love of the Game, when I was just like, for the love of God, get back to a baseball sequence. <laughs> I was thinking that it could partly be that all of the scenes are just so delightful that I wasn't ever bothered by the fact that there wasn't a baseball scene. But I think that you're probably right that it's the amount of talking about baseball in the scenes that are not about baseball that makes it feel like there's such a plus plus amount of baseball in this movie. Yeah, and I think that it's really, you know, the amount of baseball I think also... For me, it bleeds a little bit into storytelling and accuracy categories. But the baseball that we get when we get it is also just so satisfying. It's super These satisfying. are nutritional baseball bites that we're getting. They you you get a little bit of this baseball and it'll last you the whole day. Exactly. It's not that like pancake baseball. <laughs> Where you feel bottomed out after you watch it and then you're hungry again for more in two hours. Yeah, or Chinese food baseball. It's yeah. Not bad. No, yeah. no, no. It's like it's like a baseball protein powder. Yeah, it's not gonna make you logy. It's gonna make you ready for your day. I think I'm done with this metaphor. Excellent. <laughs> Let's move on to our next section, which is baseball accuracy. I think I'm gonna go fifty here. Mm. I think it's a solid major league. Baseball accuracy. This is the highest score that I've given in this category so far, by the way. 
I think it is the fact that the women in this film were all so athletic. Reportedly, they did a lot of their own baseball stunts and they were playing their own baseball games. And you can just tell, you can just feel that in the movie. And I think that that's part of what gives it some of its baseball accuracy. Yeah, I think I'm going to go 60. I'm a little torn on this because when we talk about baseball accuracy, I think it's a tricky thing of wanting to distinguish between the accuracy of what was going on with the league at that time, like the accuracy specifically to that league versus just general baseball accuracy, like how they're playing the sport. And some of that really goes down to what was actually happening to the people there in their wool outfits in 100 plus degree weather in the Midwest. And like you can feel the actual like heat and discomfort that they were in. Those are real injuries that you see. There is that shot where Gaspers is nursing a deep, awful looking bruise on her kind of like upper thigh and Jimmy Dugan is taking a picture of it. That is an actual injury that she received on set, and it didn't heal for a year. Oh, my God. So all of the bumps and bruises and all of that is actually what it was, and Penny Marshall just took advantage of that. Isn't that crazy? That shot is so horrifying of her bruise, and I just thought, hey... Good job, makeup person. Yeah. and I, But, like, it gives me a visceral gasp. Yeah, it's and like, it was Gaspers that got it. How would you know? This is a little bit aside from accuracy, but apparently there were some grumbles about Madonna on set. Some of it could be overblown. Some of it might not be. I know that there were people, I think John Lovitz in an interview was sort of confronted with this and he was kind of, he was very diplomatic and kind of like, well, I wasn't really on set that much, as much as they were. And also they were playing hard, long days And aside from their filming, some of their filming was actually playing baseball because Penny Marshall wanted shots that she could insert of them, of them playing actual games in the movie. And I think that it just made her really bummed out. There was a letter that got leaked where Madonna was writing to a photographer friend of hers. And among other things in the letter, she says, quote, I cannot suffer any more than I have in the past month learning how to play baseball with a bunch of girls. Yuck. In Chicago, double yuck. Oh, please. I have a tan. I am dirty all day, and I hardly ever wear makeup. Penny Marshall is Laverne. Gina Davis is a Barbie doll. And when God decided where the beautiful men were going to live in the world, he did not choose Chicago. Ouch. Ouch. But if you're not really... I mean, she was a pop star used to a certain kind of treatment. And I don't know. I mean, she'd done movies at that point, but I don't know if she'd done a film as physically ruling. So I don't say that to be little Madonna or say that she's a, a bad person, but I think that she did not have the best time. There are some accuracy-related things related to the League itself. Is this something that you had read Go up on some stuff? So a lot of it's pretty good. I think essentially what it comes down to is the world is very accurate, but the way that the game itself was played 
is not exactly accurate to 1943, which because I think was the first year. In the first season, they sort of did an underhanded softball type pitch, right? Exactly. Yeah. They they did an underhanded pitch with 12, an underhanded pitch. Maha. They did an underhand pitch uh, with a 12-inch ball to start. The distances, generally speaking, were shorter it was just 40 feet from the mound. The base paths were shorter. They were 65 feet. As the league went on, which it went on, I don't have the exact date, but it was into the 50s. Every few years, they would make the ball a little bit smaller. They'd make the paths a little bit longer. And so by the time the league ended, it was it was basically baseball with overhand throwing and uh, 60 feet from the mound. The base paths were still always slightly shorter. They, they maxed out at 80 feet, but otherwise it was pure baseball. And they followed actual baseball rules. So if you wanted to, for example, be a, a little baseball snob and say that when Madonna catches a ball in her hat, doesn't count. that would not count because it's a detached object, which is in violation of MLB rules, you might be a little bit of a spoiled sport bummer person, but you'd be a correct one. Uh-oh, I'm going to be quite a spoiled sport <laughs> bummer person here in just a little bit. I, you know, obviously... There is an element of that that's just the the sort of like fun and the world of the movie. But you know, I'm actually deeply in favor of the movie doing this the way that they did mm-hmm. because that is ultimately what the game was. And so if they depicted it historically correctly to 1943, then it would look like softball and everybody watching the movie would be like, oh, women weren't really playing baseball. They were just playing softball. Yeah. So I actually feel like this is the film getting sort of the spirit of the law correct in portraying it the way that they do with the women throwing overhand and the ball being closer to the size of a baseball i'm i'm on board for all of that yeah and like some of it i don't know does it matter that in 1943 the league had a five game series for the world series instead of a seven game series maybe but not really to me i'm sure that there are plenty of people who grumbled about that and maybe continue to do it but yeah it really it's very accurate to how the game we play it now is which i i think is a lot there's a lot of baseball movies set in more or less contemporary times that don't do that And it really does have great baseball feel. It's got the, aside from the world of this league, with the charm schools and the chaperones and all of this crazy stuff and the rules of conduct that they had to obey, you've got stuff that just feels right. You've got the the superstitions of crossing the fingers past the graveyard and not changing socks and Tom Hanks when they're at the church saying, God knows we have a game trying to rush them out. But then before he leaves, he does turn around and cross himself just in case. Because, you know, you never know what's going to work. You got to cover your bases. (laughs) That's what they say in church. I think one historical inaccuracy that I understand why they did it in the film, but I just think it's important to point out, is that the league was actually decently popular from the first year. Um, According to the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League website, which there's no good way to say that shortly. Like, if you say A-A-G-P-B-L, that's actually not that much better than saying All-American Girls Professional Baseball It's like something that one of those, like, you you can't can't say the acronym. It just ends up being like something that one of those Looney Tunes characters with a lisp would say. Yeah, or like somebody choking on a pretzel. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. So, 
Uh, according to their website, we'll figure this out at some point, but basically we can't win. There were 176,612 fans for the 1943 season, and you have to remember there's only four teams. Wow. Um, and eventually it was a 10-team, two-division league. So the thing that is depicted in the film of, oh no, nobody's coming to these games, we better get Dottie Henson to do the splits, that mm -hmm. didn't actually happen. Yeah, I think in my reading about the film and the accuracy. And this is exactly the sort of person that I don't want to sound like when I talk about little nitpicky things about how this is different from how the league was actually played. The picture that makes Life magazine in the movie of Dottie Hinson doing the splits and catching the ball. Gina Davis, by the way, could do the splits, but I think she needed help and maybe a double to like sort of slam down into the splits that way mm. is that... Um, you were talking about the cover of the magazine. The cover of the magazine. Sorry, I just went into a different place thinking, about, thinking Gina about Gina Davis, Davis, doing, Davis the doing the splits. It's, it happens, guys. So there was somebody who kind of well actually that being like, well, actually, that issue of Life magazine has a hula dancer on it. So there, your move, movie. Okay. Which is so, you know, and, and uh, it's like, that's so dumb. Okay. I, I don't want to be that kind of person either, but I do have some things that I would like to say about the, not historical accuracy, but the baseball accuracy of this movie for merely a baseball fan watching the movie. I love that we're talking about baseball accuracy and we've both given it pretty good scores and we're and this might end up being like one of the longer categories It's going to be episode. the longest category. Yeah. Right? Like, the, no question. <laughs> so... The famous sequence in which Kit and Daddy collide at the plate. Mm. That ball takes a very questionable route, especially given that we're all supposed to be paying attention to the fact that Evelyn couldn't hit the cutoff man, woman, person earlier in the game in that completely iconic, brilliant scene with Tom Hanks. Right. The, the, not that not the there's no crying in baseball scene, but the other one where he's like controlling his anger. Like, I get yeah. that There's No Crying in Baseball well, is more iconic, but I actually, I love the scene where he's trying to control his anger even better because I feel like the acting choices are just so, so brilliant. And it's great that in the storytelling of it, you see that that actually works. Like, she does hit the cutoff man in that moment. She does. She does. But in this sequence, so Kit's hauling ass around the bases, and Evelyn throws to the cutoff man, who's player 56... I'm going to guess that's the second baseman after Marla Hooch departed. So 56 throws to Doris, our third baseman, which, okay, this is probably the right call there, but that could be debated. The real issue is that Kit is right there when Doris catches the ball, and she could probably just tag her out. If it was supposed to be that Kit was past Doris, then the, the second baseman, number 56, should have gone straight home with the ball. Or Doris, who was amazingly vocal during the at-bat, you know, earlier, like, one, two, three, one, two, three, let's get him, really should have been able to get Kit out herself. And if she couldn't, then there should have been a moment about that, given the shit that she was talking. Then there's also this mention that the third base coach gives Kit the stop sign, but she's just jumping up and down and holding her hat, which it seems to me to be unlikely to be the stop sign to me. Mm. So then the other thought that I had about that sequence was, would Dottie really need to tell Ellen Sue where the holes in Kit's swing were? Like, no, they were teammates for so long. They were teammates. I mean, I appreciate how 2019 it is for her to ask for the high fastball. But aside from that, 
There are four teams and 64 players. Wouldn't everybody know the holes in everybody's swing at that point? You would think so. You would think so. I get that they don't have video scouting, and I get that this is an important storytelling point, and we'll get to that later. One more question about this sequence. Why did they have Ellen Sue as both a shortstop and a pitcher? I feel like it would have been more interesting if from the get-go we saw that there were other pitchers on the team besides Kit. I mean, which there are, because Betty Spaghetti is also a pitcher. Although you get that when she's put out there to complete that game for Kit, it's a little bit more of a, like, position player pitching situation. (laughs) But I also get that with 16 players on the team, you're going to need to have people who are sort of, like, super, super utility player types. Yeah. Well, in the same way that Kit is the team's pitcher, but, like, she can also hit a ball. Yeah, but if you've got pitchers probably finishing out the game and you don't have the DH, it's totally useful to have a pitcher who can hit the ball. That's not a problem. Anyway, maybe I wouldn't be thinking about this if we haven't seen this problem in other baseball movies, but I hate it when the team is depicted to only have one pitcher. Mm. Like, it just, it really bothers me and I feel like it actually would have been interesting if maybe there was some competition earlier on with Ellen Sue and Kit set up as pitchers and I was wondering if maybe their schedule meant that they had more off days but I did some research and it suggested that they played 108 games from mid-May to the 1st of September so that's not enough off days to only have one pitcher and sometimes sub your shortstop in plus plus Absolutely nothing is made about the fact that they're going to have to have their starting shortstop pitch, and this is going to leave them with a defensive liability right up the middle at the most crucial defensive position. The other Our radiator is coming on, you guys. Sorry. The other thing that I was going to say about accuracy is just that there's, and this is why I I scored it a little bit higher was. There are a number of things that are just like really nice little attention to detail. There are the shots that, without making a big deal of it, show Kit in the dugout with like a jacket over the arm because she's resting in between innings. There's the historical stuff of the groupie guys that follow Doris around, which was an actual thing. LaVon Pepper Pear Davis, in her autobiography, Dirt in the Skirt, which is the phrase that is on the Racine Bells bus. And I don't know if it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg situation for me. I don't know if she pulled the term for her book or if the movie is honoring her with that phrase because I haven't read the book. But there is mention of these kind of groupy figures at various points in her book, apparently, in which... I think it is delightful that the names that were given to them were Clubhouse Clydes and (laughs) Locker Room Leonards. Ooh, I feel like I'd rather have a Clubhouse Clyde than a Locker Room Leonard. I I think a Clubhouse Clyde is the way to go, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Locker Room Leonard sounds a little creepy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's all I have on on accuracy, but... Great. I have a couple more things that I'd like to say. So... Kit says at one point, it was an important win. We made the playoffs with this win, but there are four teams in the league. Like the whole season is the playoffs. Say the series. Uh. It's not the playoffs. It's just the, it's just the one series. Um, another problem that I have with something that Kit says is in the opening scene when she and, and Dottie are arguing about her swinging at the high ones, she says, there's a hole in right field, so if it's an inside pitch, she'll have to pull it. 
okay, the biggest problem here is that she is a right-handed batter. So yeah. she can only pull a ball to left field. But secondly, if it's an inside pitch, literally her only option is going to be to hit, hit the ball out in front and pull it. It's not like a choice. This is true. So in the sequence where Dottie and Jimmy are giving the dueling signs, which is, it, first of all, it's delightful. Although I would like it better if Dottie were not trying to signal to Bunt, which is actually dumb. But what neither of them are signaling to Marla is that if she's a switch hitter, she should be batting lefty versus the right-handed pitcher on the mound. What? What is going on with this? Why are they not using their secret weapon, Marla Hooch? You know what? Screw this movie. I don't feel that way at all. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, but I still, I can't help but see these things. Of course, of course. So... When the team's roster is first called, both Marla and Doris are announced as the second baseman, which baffles me, first of all, as a film mistake, because it's like the easiest thing in the world that you could ADR and record a fix. But here's my real issue. Marla Hooch is a second baseman? Like, okay, the same way that Mike Moustakis is a second baseman. Doesn't Marla Hooch scream corner infielder to you? Yeah. I know that they've got Doris at third, that's fine. But then Helen is sort of a non-entity at first, like we don't see her playing very often, and they could easily have had Marla at first, and more plausibly, just like, tell me who seems like the better switch-hitting player cop for Marla, Chipper Jones or Roberto Alomar? Mm. It pains me to say this because I love Marla Hooch so much, but it's Chipper. It's it's Chipper all the way, or, or Eddie Murray. My only thought here is that maybe they wanted Marla to be in the background of more shots up the middle, including the pitcher's mound. Yeah. And so maybe they were like, oh, she'll be more visible at second base. Okay, fine, whatever. This this last one is a small point. But storytelling-wise, I get why there are all those guys supposedly fielding for Marla in the gym in her tryout because of the moment when they all groan when she switches to bat lefty is yeah. brilliant. And I want it played at my funeral. But why are they there? They do nothing. Like, not a single one of those guys ever fields a single one of her balls. I don't know. I mean, that doesn't really bother me that much. and doesn't seem inaccurate. It's just a storytelling point. I don't know if maybe Marla's dad got a team that was already practicing that day to come and help her out in terms of the scouting coming like he had to organize a pitcher to come at some point and maybe just got a team over i don't know i wonder if this was a part of the longer cut you know the original cut of this film was over four hours long because are you making that up i'm not making that up the original the the first that cut feels of like it, the kind of thing that eric would make up as a no joke. the first cut of the film was four hours long because in part Penny Marshall and the writers, they loved the characters so much. And you can really see that throughout the film, but they all had much more intricate storylines, I think. The one thing off the top of my head that I remember from what I read about it is that one of the extra sequences with Marla shows her being a member of, I think, the Racine Bells, having been traded and is pregnant and trying to keep it secret so that she can still play. And then at one point, a character, I think it might even be Dottie, slides in to second. And maybe that's part of the reason why she was second also was for this story point. 
slides into second and there's an injury. She has to get carried off on a stretcher and there's a big moment of, is the baby okay? And in this version of the film that we do not have and have not seen, apparently the baby's okay. We need this movie, though. I would love to see that cut. There's, like, I have decided that there's little that I want more out of this life than to see the four-hour version of A League of Their Own. Oh, really? It would be wonderful. It would be good. I think there's more that I want out of life. I mean, clearly, as people who record two-hour-long podcasts, we would love a four-hour-long League of Their Own. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but people wouldn't be able to deal with the podcast we would make of it. <laughs> that's probably true. So the only other oh. the only other accuracy that I want to mention after some of Ellen's wonkier takes on the the playing of the games is just to point out that in the first World Series, the Racine Bells did win, but they did not play the Rockford Peaches, despite the fact that the Rockford Peaches won many championships in the 10-odd years that the league was in play, but actually won against the Kenosha Comets. I believe they swept them, and partly I just wanted to say that the other team was the Kenosha Comets, because other baseball teams are really satisfying, and I really love old-timey ones especially, which is why... I love so much and wish that they had, maybe they do have available somewhere, Doris's jersey during the training in Wrigley Field slash Harvey Park is of a team called, that I'm guessing is a real team, but I don't know, called the Staten Island Stevedores, which is so good. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Think of all of the other team names that we could have if we just had the four-hour version of a league of their own. It's true. Well, the thing about that is there are elements in it that I think would make you barf in your mouth also, including a little bit more of a romantic storyline between Gina Davis and Tom Hanks. I don't know how much of it is reciprocated by her, but apparently in the in the scene that I read about uh, there is a moment where she is taking some kind of batting practice at night, and it's a beautiful night, I'm sure, and he compares her to Ty Cobb and Ted Williams, and then he kisses her. And in the structure of the film, it's that's the night that the next morning she's packing up to go home with her husband. And I think that that is a case where... Less is more, and their connection is good without that aspect of the storyline being filled out. I fully agree that the movie is better without that, and it would make me barf in my mouth. However, that is not an argument against being able to see the four-hour version of A League of Their Own. I'm not suggesting that the four-hour version should replace the version that we have. I'm just saying it should be like the Folio and the Quarto Hamlets. We should have both versions. Fair. We're going to move on to our next category, which is storytelling. So, storytelling. how do you score this for storytelling? Which, by the way, is our way of sort of rolling writing, direction, and editing into one category. I think that I am going to go with a 70 on storytelling. There's a lot of baseball storytelling that's really good. But really, when it comes down to it, so much of this is 
about the story of these two sisters. And I really love that there is a very clear dynamic between them, but that it's a pretty complicated relationship in which, as many times as I've seen this film, every time I revisit it, there are moments where I'm on Dottie's side and moments where I'm on Kit's side. There are moments where I'm like, ugh, Kit, come on. Like, you have such a chip on your shoulder. You need to get over it. You need to, like, go into therapy about these issues that you have. But then I'm like, if Dottie doesn't care about baseball, like she says, then why is she micromanaging Kit so much? And in their, like, mule-nag interchange that kind of bookends their dynamic in the film, they say it to each other at the farm, and then they also say it to each other after the World Series. It is important to note that this only begins because Dottie calls Kit a mule. It's a defensive nag calling is what I'm saying. I see, She's the instigator in the name calling. Yeah, so... I still need to give my grade before I address that point, which is also really at the heart of the film and at the heart of what makes it so good. Yeah. So if this scale is just for baseball movies, but also maybe even if it's not, I feel like I have to give this an 80. This is one of my Hall of Fame level baseball movie storytelling. Okay. I The movie is just so excellent. It's, it's delightful. Everything is clear. Everything is beautifully set up. I have no notes. I don't know what movie I would give an 80 to. So this is me just being stingy in terms of giving an 80 more than anything else, I think. Yeah, whereas I'm thinking there are Hall of Fame players that exist that had an 80-grade talent. And so I think that this movie, just as Bob Uecker sets the benchmark for delightfulness of announcer in Major League, I feel like this is one of the films that, for me personally, sets the benchmark for delightfulness and storytelling in baseball movies. I agree with that. And to the point of the sister relationship, I think that the brilliant thing about the movie, one of the many brilliant things, is the way in which we all admire Dottie and think we're Dottie, even though we're all, most of us, Kit. Like, when I was a kid, I watched it being like, I'm going to be like Dottie. And now I am a grown-up person, and I know I have always been Kit. I am Kit, <laughs> and I have always been Kit. I, I play competent people on TV because that's a story that my face tells for some reason, but I am not a preternaturally talented, couldn't care less about that talent kind of person. I'm like the diametric opposite. And I honestly, I think most people are, although I think Dottie's exist. Like, Eric and I knew an actor who was so, so, so almost infuriatingly good at acting with, like, this impeccable ease, and he gave it up, and he became a butcher, because I think maybe it was just too easy for him, you know? Like, he was the version for us of what Dottie was like, oh, yeah, no, 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 like, as soon as my husband comes home, I'm not going to play anymore, because playing isn't that big of a deal because it's just so easy. Yeah, the thing that is great, Also, in terms of storytelling, aside from setting up the dynamic that kind of fuels the story between Dottie and Kit, is there's just really good storytelling of them being sisters. It's a very full relationship. The competitiveness of the the, walk running is so good. And apparently, Lori Petty 
was a much faster runner than Gina Davis. So she had to kind of cheat it a little bit to lose in that moment. Which is very ironic because I also think that storytelling wise, one of the most brilliant things that the film does is set up the ambiguity about whether or not Dottie drops the ball on purpose in that climactic World Series Oh sequence. my God. I feel like I change my mind every time I see it. Totally. Me too. So on the one hand, we know that Dottie is a competitor and, and she doesn't coddle her sister. She tells Jimmy Dugan that her sister should be taken out when she should be taken out. And we know that she just walked to the mound and told Ellen Sue that she can't hit the high ones. I mean, I think that that's why that moment exists. Yeah. It's there to show you that... She's in it to win it. Like, up until the very end, we think. But on the other hand, she's depicted as clearly not caring as much about playing baseball and as much about the league as Kit from the get-go. And then she leaves the league and she's not going back. And she has to have this feeling of the injury that Kit is nursing because of the trade situation and wanting to know how she can make that right. And... I think that there's no way that she would throw the game for Kit, but I do feel like the film is presenting it in that it's wholly possible that she decided to let the force of that blow allow her to release the ball. Right. Well, and, you know, at the end of the game, when they have their their little exchange, when Dottie talks to Kit, she says, you wanted it more than me, mm-hmm. which I feel like... I don't know if it necessarily indicates a choice, but it makes me wonder if right up until the very end, right up until Kit rounded third and was charging home, she was gung-ho and wanting this victory at any, not at any cost, but wanting this victory. And then something in those final moments made her do something, like you say, like not throw the game, but to maybe take the hit in a slightly different way or take the hit as opposed to being the aggressor in the tag. It's something that is really wonderfully ambiguous. Because I think that the question is, what is the story that the film is telling? And in that early scene, when we see the older Dottie and she's talking to her two grandsons, she tells the older one to basically let the younger one win a little bit. Yeah, to let him have his fair share or something. Yeah, Yeah. something like that. And so in a way, that being at the start of the film and then at the end of the film, her letting her younger sister win a little bit could be this clue or that like that was the moment when she learned that thing, that she didn't know that beforehand. But in that moment, she learned sometimes it's important to let your younger sister win a little bit. I have it right here at the very beginning of the film. She tells the older grandson to give his younger brother a chance, which I think is a good, goes exactly into what you were saying about not throwing it, but like, I don't know, almost making it a coin flip situation of, well, maybe this will happen, maybe it won't. Yeah, just letting like go blowing a little bit. on the dice just a little bit. And then, of course, in that same moment at the very beginning, she turns to the younger brother and says, kill him, which I think is an indication that she has sort of learned a lesson of what it is to be 
a younger sibling being in the shadow of the older sibling and giving respect and props to the need to fight and to cultivate that that instinct to like get your own you know because she was giving it a chance mm-hmm to continue to be a star in that league, knowing that that was what Kit wanted more than anything else, and knowing that it wasn't even something that she really wanted. Yes, obviously she loved to play, and she loved the game. You know, Jimmy has that line to her about, like, it's obvious that you love this game. And she does, but she does not love it the way that Kit loves it, and she recognizes that. Yeah, And it seems to me sort of like the story that the film is telling throughout is something like... The relationship of two sisters, always in competition, is resolved through their opportunity to play professionally or something of that kind. Like I often when I'm watching something, I'm like, what is the single sentence story that this thing is telling? And I feel like that's the story that it's telling. But I feel like the film allows for the ambiguity of course, that resolution is the story that the film is telling because it makes that happen. The story makes it so that she drops the ball, whether or not she as a character drops the ball. But I still feel like it's very important to the film that what she does, she ultimately does for her sister. And it actually made me sort of think about the interesting notion of the reluctant hero who is excellent, who is so good at the thing, the thing being baseball here, who nevertheless does it only for somebody else. That that is such a key part of the Dottie story that she wouldn't have gone at all if it weren't for Kit. And it reminds me of what totally fictional Lou Gehrig does in Pride of the Yankees where he's like oh I guess I'll play baseball because my sick mom needs money which I don't think is that is an actual thing what I just didn't yeah 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 he actually went that was that was the inciting thing to get him into no way. yeah I mean all I, I haven't read a Lou Gehrig biography I just like read the Wikipedia page and it didn't mention anything about it so I, I read crazy. it anecdotally I think it's true I read it anecdotally somewhere while I was researching the movie okay yeah. all right well I had obviously developed this grand theory about how the true hero has to be excellent but really just do the thing for somebody else like oh fine i guess i'll play baseball if you make me well and it feels very true to their going back just a little bit and what you're saying it feels very true that Dottie would do this for her for the sake of her sister like she's not that interested in playing she's a little bit skeptical of the whole thing but she'll play because she sees how much Kit wants to play. And then Kit's awareness of all of this and how it's just all the more infuriating to her. Mm-hmm. Like that dynamic, like she's aware that even though Kit is able to show her value and show that she belongs on the team to show her Jason worth... Is I was that... laughing because that was always a joke that we had. When Jason Worth did a great thing, it, uh, we would yell, he showed his value. Yeah, as opposed to Worth, because we're wordsmiths. and <laughs> <laughs> But it, it felt very true to that kind of like sibling dynamic and also just that thing of knowing that you have earned your place but you only got the chance because someone allowed it to happen that is your main rival is like, I totally understand the like, you know, dark scribbly lines above her head in the comic strip of just being 
completely exasperated by that. And um, it's such a ripe and interesting human condition. Yeah. And I, this is why, gosh, you're always making me question my scores for being too high or too low, because this is all really making 80, me, I don't storytelling. Go 71. The, <laughs> the, okay. the relationship is very, it's very clear, but very complicated, which I think is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And something that's, that's just, because even after we watch this whole story and we see this understanding and we see them reuniting and we we get where both of them are coming from and you sort of feel like you live through this sibling rivalry you remember that like back at the beginning they're not at the before we get to the 40s in the prologue they they haven't really been in touch she's off right there aren't, isn't there like a question when she's talking to her daughter of like yeah. like is kick going to be there oh no she's like off like touring the country with her husband or something like that, I think. And it just makes me feel really, I don't know, it pulls me in to the movie again and again. It makes it very rewatchable because it's super complex in the way that it depicts human relationships. It's not a point A to point B to point C. It's that you can go through these journeys while still having, like, I think that their dynamic still exists even in their old age. Like, it's not a problem to be solved. It's a thing to continually navigate. Yeah. Well, this brings up for me another thing that I think is really spectacular about the storytelling in this film, which is that I think the framing device is wonderful for a few reasons. First of all, I think it's so great that the women who were actually in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League get to be in the movie. Spiritually, that's just so right. And it's so great as an audience member to see them and to see their faces and to have the actual people be remembered and immortalized in this film. But importantly, baseball is so much about nostalgia. Mm -hmm. It's so much about history and it's so much about American history. And so this moment is so much about... America in World War II. And, you know, it's something that I think about now. I think about the baseball season, whatever it will be this year, God willing, as a reflection of whatever this moment is that we're all living through in American history. And there's something so, so touching at the end of the film about seeing the black and white photos of the women that we've seen in full color throughout the whole film, even though they're not real people from a bygone era. But we have this experience of them because we've seen them in color as if they were the ball players that we knew as kids. And then we see them in the course of the movie becoming history. It's like we get to experience this thing that is so quintessentially baseball in this movie. Yeah. It's it's perfect. It's flawless. So just a couple of other storytelling things that I have on my little list here. I think that there's really good use of montage in the film. The newsreels that happen are... This is like montage porridge, okay? So for Major League, we had our our montage porridge was too cold. Mm -hmm. And for Pride of the Yankees, our montage porridge was too hot. 
Mm-hmm. And now our montage porridge is just right. And I never want to say the phrase montage porridge again. Well, I because thought it's actually really hard to say. I thought you were going to say montage porn. And I think we were both right. Like the <laughs> montages are so good. Yeah. And yeah, it's montage. porridge. Oh man. They're, they're fantastic. That's incredible storytelling. I think that another aspect we've been talking about the sister dynamic, which I think is is right because it's such a key part of the film. But another thing that's worth mentioning is the film really does such a good job of showing these ladies like taking care of each other, being teammates. There are so many good scenes like on the buses. Oh God, the the scene where Shirley Baker is kind of introduced and can't read. I also had that as one of my storytelling pluses because I thought, what a relief that Shirley Baker made the team. Yeah. Because I was thinking about the binary presented by Major League that either you can like baseball or books, but you can't like both. And if she wasn't good enough to make the team, she wouldn't have been able to have either of those things. Right, and that right. would have been really brutal. Right, right. But then there's also, there's like the care for character that the whole creative team has where you've got that scene and it's great. And then they capitalize on it, right? Like they have then a scene later on where Shirley Baker is learning to read because May, Madonna's character, all the way May, is taking time to teach her to read and it's like a smutty pulpy novel and that's a good joke but it also is a thing that's happening like she doesn't need to be teaching someone to read in the middle of the night on a bus that's a really awesome moment and you learn about rosie o'donnell doris's abusive boyfriend Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i think it's just a boyfriend right yeah and there's that great line where where they she shows them the picture and they're like is it out of focus? And she's like, no, that's just how he is. <laughs> but so this world that's created where these people are being like supportive of each other, especially within, I mean, we'll get to it, but within the misogyny of this world, that kind of like nurturing atmosphere, this very rarely is a movie where this is a team fighting with itself. It's mostly a team supporting itself. Most of the fighting, I think, actually comes as a result of the sisters squabbling. And I think that that's really, really, really lovely. And the other thing that I would say is that I think it's amazing storytelling that, and I'm I'm, I'm assuming that, that you were going to talk about this at some point as well, that, that there is, despite there being much in the way of diversity, there is a very, very powerful nod to African-American players not being allowed to play at this time when this wonderful moment where a ball sort of gets thrown out of the way and then an African-American woman in like a church dress picks it up and throws it so hard that it like hurts the catcher's like glove. Yeah, well, it doesn't even go because I think Gina Davis is like, hey, you can throw it here. And and she basically throws throws it it to somebody past her. Yeah, Yeah, I do want to talk about that moment a little later. But anyway, I, I bring that up just as like really efficient storytelling where even though this is a movie about a league that was not inclusive in that way, I think that especially by 1992 standards, I think that it's really 
cool that that moment, I mean, I'm sure that there were plenty of ways in which more of that type of thing could have been put into the film, but I really applaud the power of that moment because it's kind of like a perfect 30 second scene that tells a very big story. So our next category is acting. Acting! Acting! That's the John Lovitz thing. Did you remember it? Did you? Well, so Ellen grew up without a TV, but there was the uh, character that John Lovitz played on SNL. One of the times that he played a character who's like a sort of pompous artist. And, oh, one of and those he would, times. he would punctuate it. He would do like a stupid thing and then like punctuate it by going, acting! So, anyway... That was highly appropriate. That was a highly appropriate way to usher in this category. This isn't my first rodeo. It's my third rodeo. Um, Which, oh God, 80. It's perfect. Everyone is perfect. Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna even are perfect. Ellen Lewis did the casting and she is so good at her job and such a nice woman. And I love her. I'm at a 75. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I think it's so good. It's so funny and heartfelt. The thing that is really amazing to me about this is that it's so funny, right? Like, there are so many great one-liners. There's some kind of broad comedy going on, but it never really feels over the top. And at the same time, there are all of these dramatic moments, but it never really or very, very rarely feels melodramatic in a kind of like hacky, dumb, like hallmarky sort of way. And either of those by themselves would be a really great thing that everybody would want to pat themselves on the back for um, if I were not there to pat them on the backs for that. But the fact that they're both able yeah. to exist in this yeah. film is really incredible. I, I, oh gosh, I don't even know like where to begin with it. I think about the famous and the iconic there's no crying in baseball scene. And there's two things that I want to celebrate about this scene in particular. The crying and the baseball. The crying and the baseball. The first is that Biddy Schramm is both comedically crying and actually crying. That's, oh boy. So she's doing a, like, hilarious, funny crying. And then in the close-ups, you see there are actual tears coming out of her eyes. I have no idea how she does that, but I am here to worship at the altar of her ability to somehow comedically cry and actually cry at the same time. Yeah, you think it's easy? You try it. Oh my God, it's it's hard to do either of those things, let alone both of them exactly. at the same time. I, either one of those is hard enough. Yeah, that's like it's balancing like, a ladder on your chin while you're walking on a tightrope. It's like pitching and hitting at the same time. It's Ooh. so hard. Then the other thing is I feel like when people quote this scene, they often say, there's no crying in baseball. But in fact, what Tom Hanks says, baseball is really the operative word. And he really like cranks into that operative word. He's like, <laughs> there's no crying in baseball. And it's... So good. I yeah. Mean, those are the two things that make that scene. I I just got to say that I love John Lovitz 
so much. So much. I think that his character in the longer version of this film, I think that he had more to do. And while they were editing the film, the team was kind of like, why don't we just cut it down to the absolute best stuff of his? Which is why you've got this weirdly, I don't know, it's it's a very strange performance to me because it feels almost iconic in how good it is. But it's a sort of small supporting part but every single line that he has is a winner and like almost almost every line that he has is basically quotable they're all 70 or 80 grade jokes oh yeah there's nothing below a plus plus joke that he ever ever says well and just to give a little credit to john lovitz in particular the writing is so good in this movie, but that is not to say that this movie was free from the ad lib. There is the moment where John Lovitz scouting, thinking that he's, eh, well, Dottie doesn't want to come along with him, so good luck in the dairy farm, leaves, and Kit comes out and argues their case. And John Lovitz gives her like a, it's a really nice moment. He gives her a little pat on the shoulder and then sort of feels how strong she is and gives her a second look. And in one of those shots, there is a cow kind of lowing in the background and John Lovitz turns around and goes, will you shut up? Or something like that. That's my Lovitz, by the way. And how was it? Was it, was it okay? Oh, thank God. And the thing that I did not know about this moment is, is not just that it was ad-libbed, but it was ad-libbed because that cow in question in the background was in labor what? at that moment. And so the reason that it was making a big fuss was it was having a little baby cow. <laughs> yeah. And that baby cow was named, oh, that was a really well-timed collar jiggle by our pup Mabel. But the, the cow was named, the little baby cow was named Penny. After Penny Marshall by oh. the farmers to oh, sort of honor cow. her. Yeah. Oh. But that's just a really great, I mean, I don't know that it necessarily rises up to the level of just a bit outside, but it's still a pretty great moment that happened for sort of interesting and like unusual reasons. And now I'm thinking about baby cows. Yeah. Because baby cows are so sweet. They are really, really sweet. Yeah, that baby cow that I got to work with on The Sinner was such a Uh, nice baby cow. There are so many scenes that, that we could talk about. Another scene that I want to just like quickly point out is the scene in which the telegram comes. Just because I think it is really good. It's really good storytelling and it's really good acting. I think that there's a lot of really subtle work going on by a whole ensemble of people, which is really maybe my main thing to say about the acting of this film. It's just like, it's just aces across the board. You get really specific responses from the people who have uh, husbands and the people who aren't. Sort of, you've got the concerned people over here. You've got the, is it me? People over there. And then the way that that scene develops as Jimmy Dugan takes the telegram from the kind of jerky, slightly overwritten telegram Yeah, telegram that's the guy. only problem that yeah. I have with the scene is that I feel like the telegram guy is a little implausible. 
Like, he's a little bit of a straight villain, in a way. Well, he says a couple of things that I think just don't need to be said. I think that he has a couple of, like... You could still like, have we get what's going on thing. without you... Yeah. Without him being such a jerk. Yeah. And then all of the tension leading up to the moment of them, of Jimmy Dugan, walking up to... Oh, not Dottie Hinson, but Betty Spaghetti, to learn that her husband, George... Spaghetti has been uh, killed in combat is really it's just so well done. It's one of several deeply moving moments in the film for me. I felt like I had kind of tears welling up half a dozen times watching it just the other night. It's a really great scene. And it's interesting to me that I think one of the things that I have to say that makes it so effective is that I remember that scene from when I was a child and saw this movie. Mm. And I remember very specifically being a child and having the thought that it's strange that it's sort of okay because it's not Dottie's husband. Yeah. That for somebody, if this were a movie in which Betty Spaghetti were the hero, then this would be the absolute devastating moment. Yeah. And it is incredibly sad in the film, but it's not that the film has suddenly become a tragedy because it is a secondary character, even if it's a secondary character that we are fond of, who is experiencing the tragedy and not the main character. And I remember so clearly as a child having this thought about the difference between personally experiencing a tragedy and the person next to you experiencing a tragedy as much as you would try to feel for them. And and this is crucial, the way in which storytelling endows us as the main character so that we become the main character and so them experiencing a tragedy is like us experiencing a tragedy. Yeah, wow. And yeah, it was, I remember the moment so clearly when I was a kid. I love it also because, um, and I think this is a little bit related to, like, I think that it's such a powerful moment and it's not, except for, again, that, uh, that damn telegram guy, ugh, get him out of here faster, Jimmy Dugan, is that it's not, I think that when the tragedy lands, it's not milked. It happens, They there's a little bit of grief, and then it moves on. It, and I think that there are a couple of ways in other places that the film does that, in that sort of quiet, but let's not dwell on it, tragic sort of thing. There's a moment, I think it's Jimmy Dugan talking about his knee and like the not having cartilage mm -hmm. in his knees, where he says, how'd I get so useless so fast? And it's just such a true cutting line that has worlds of tragedy in it. But he says it and the movie trusts like this is great and moves on. It's not leaning on those things. Yeah. It's just it's just really good storytelling. So we're going to move on now to our next category, which is the delightfulness of catcher character. So obviously, our lead is the catcher character. And so in that case, it might be controversial for me to say 70 here. But I'm going to say 70, even though she's one of my favorite characters of all time. So in a way, I've graded other things 80. Maybe it should be 80. But the fact that she leaves the team, ugh, 
It's like quintessentially uncatcher in the catcher <laughs> archetype for her to leave the team. I mean, even if it is for Bill Pullman, um, who I love so much. And That's right, because he solved your murder a couple of years he ago. He solved my murder on a the second of years season ago, of on the second the season of The Sinner, and he's a very nice man. And watching him listen is like drinking a glass of water. Yeah, um, when you're thirsty. When you're thirsty, yes. Not when you're like, oh god, I couldn't have another drop of water. I'm, Which I don't know about you, but I am like all the time. I am always thirsty for watching Bill Pullman listen. Always. So what's your grade? Oh, God. I'm going to go with the 80. Like, <laughs> how how could I not go 80? This is my chance to be, like, all in on the catcher. And when the catcher is this good, damn it. I mean, Gina Davis is so dreamy in this movie. She's, dreamy. She's undeniably dreamy. She's so, like... She's a little bit of a Mary Sue in that she's just like, there's almost a little too much like working out for her. She's almost a little too like perfect. Maybe I'm, maybe I have its perspective a little bit on this. She's like, we all admire Dottie and we want to be Dottie, but we're all actually Kit. She's stunningly beautiful. She's smart. She's a leader. She's witty. She keeps her cool. She cares about her family. She gets the team behind her. Even when in training, Rosie O'Donnell throws a ball at her face. What does she do? She bare hand catches it and then everybody likes her. She doesn't complain about like things not happening for her. She is just someone who like makes that thing happen. Just like that baseball. She like grabs it and she draws people to it. And man, she just fills the void when Jimmy Dugan is not there. She is effortlessly a leader and being a catcher is so hard. And she has so many skills that are not even necessarily like expected of a good catcher. And she does all of it with like complete grace and without effort, which is why she's almost like a little too perfect, which is why I'm like, God, I don't know, like that Madonna letter seemed pretty mean. No like she is like kind of a Barbie, but like I don't mean that in a like derogatory way. It's just like she just seems like perfect in this. So, in conclusion, 80. Good. Excellent. What do you think about the delightfulness of the announcer? I'm going to go I'm going to go 40, but it's not exactly their fault. I just think that announcers were not really they were more the 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 noise of the they were definitely I think considered a background element of this film. They're a narrative device more than a fleshed out character. There are two announcers, I think. Yes. And one of them is boring, but a little more invested. And one of them is is a little more jaded, but says some pretty fun catchphrases, even if the camera isn't on him at the time. Yeah. I went 45. Also, through no real fault of their own, but there's just not much of a presence. And I think... I, I've, in the past, graded an announcer for being just kind of forgettable at 45. So, yeah, I'm going to go 45 again. I mean, I will say that I loved the exclamations, Uncle Elmore socks, that happens at one point, And then another one saying, take me home, mama, and put me to bed. I've seen enough to know I've seen too much. 
And those are great lines. They're wonderful. But the movie is just not structured to kind of showcase the announcer in those moments. Yeah. And then also there's that moment where he says both Marla Hooch and Doris are both at second base, which is just inexcusable. He's just bad at his job. He's just bad at his job. He's like that guy that one time calling Alex Bregman Bergman. Oh. Inexcusable. So our next category is lack of misogyny. So named so that a positive score is a good thing. And for me, this just also has to be 80. I just think there's going to be, there's not going to be another baseball movie with a better lack of misogyny. Obviously, misogyny is depicted in the movie, but the film itself is clearly not misogynist. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I I think that one of the best things about it is actually one of the things that you were mentioning earlier, which is the way that the women really take care of each other, but not in a way that's schmaltzy at all, in right. a way that feels really genuine. And I also feel like the movie really shows that there are a lot of different ways to be a woman. And that they're all fine. Like, you could sort of roll your eyes at May's sexpot character, but those women exist, and they should be the way that they want to be. And And she's not shamed for it. And she's not shamed for it at all. And yeah, exactly. In some ways, she's a little bit celebrated as like she's really good at dancing, and she's kind of the ringleader to bring everybody out and have a good girls' night out. And And those great moments where you see her teaching... Exactly. Teaching the reading, and, and like helping Kit with her nails and giving her like boy advice and stuff. Yeah, but I feel like the film also has the position that Marla Hooch has another way of being a woman and Doris has another way of being a woman and Dottie has a way of being a woman and Kit has her own way. And the film's thesis is that these are all okay. So it's not only just about like, look what women can do, but it's also not saying that women have to be one kind of able, which I really like. So my score with this, I'm going to go a little bit lower. I'm going to go 70. And there, I don't know what an 80 would be if this is a 70. So I acknowledge that completely. I guess I'm contending with the dynamic of depicting misogyny versus participating in misogyny. And there are plenty of moments where, you know, like one of the montages show is highlighting the players, but it's not like, look at the arm on this one and look at the swing on this one and the speed of this person. It's like one is pouring coffee, one is knitting. Oh, this one is a former Miss Georgia. And it's got a little bit of a sideshow aspect that the movie is clearly like, look at how ridiculous this is, that these amazing athletes are not being treated seriously. And I think that all of that is really great. But when you come to the fact that a lot of this movie is comedic, there are still jokes that are kind of like not necessarily great at the expense of the women. Like we see the value of Marla Hooch as a batter and there's so many great things from that. There still are a couple of jokes at her expense because of her appearance. John Lovitz has one of, I mean, like one of the reasons that he won't, that he doesn't want to bring her in is because she too closely resembles a guy that he knows. And there's the moment in the beauty school where they go through all of the various people to see how good a job they did getting made up. And it's like this person, this person, this person 
and then it gets to Marla and it's like, what would you recommend? A lot of night games. And that is like a joke made at the expense of her appearance, which it is a misogynist joke. Okay, but two, but two things. Okay, number one, of course, Dottie and Kit stand up for Marla in that moment, and they will not... Not in the makeup moment. Not, no, it's true, not in the makeup moment, but nobody else hears that besides mm-hmm. Marla and the woman. That's true. And my basic stance here is that portraying misogyny with an anti-misogynist storytelling opinion is actually a very lack of misogyny thing to do. So, in a way, a film that has absolutely no opinion whatsoever on misogyny is not as lack of misogyny as is one that portrays it in a negative light. And I think that women are huge misogynists. And so I feel like including female misogyny, that it's not just about like, oh, all these guys are, you know, wrongly objectifying these women or judging some of them to not be beautiful enough that women do the same thing. I'm really glad that moment's in the movie. The other thing that I want to point out is... I mean, Marla Hoot should be a corner infielder, but please continue. Tom Hanks and The Chaperone is another moment where I'm like, this is played for a certain kind of comedy that I feel like in 2020 is not okay in the way that it was in 1992, where he makes a lot of jokes at the expense of her and her appearance, and then drunkenly, confusedly kisses her on the bus, which is, like, not super cool. And then after that, I think we're supposed to see it as sort of like a charming, kind of bundle that in with him getting more into not just coaching, but being a member of the league and sort of like getting like, yeah, I, I like I like this place kind of vibe in where he's at in contrast to where he was at the beginning of the movie. But a lot of that expresses itself in him like, patting the chaperone on the ass and like giving a lot of like unwanted non-consensual advances to her. And I think that that is played for comedy as opposed to like, look at this guy doing this problematic thing in the way that things like the montage is or other moments in the film that I don't know. It it's something that's keeping me from wanting to give it like a perfect score. I'm I I totally get your point and I'm going to return to that bus moment in a little bit. But to me early on in the movie, Jimmy Dugan is perhaps the in a way misogynist villain and he's played so charmingly that we the audience knows he's not going to remain the villain for the entire film. Sure. But plus actually, he's Tom Hanks. Plus he's Tom Hanks, but I would actually argue that at the like towards the beginning of the film, he's actually the main sort of antagonist of the film and I mean, I think about that scene when Dottie gets the home run when she swings on a 3-0 pitch and he gets the credit because he's just I had that written down too, yeah. And I'm like, what woman has not had that experience? Yeah, that was another good announcer line too. Mm -hmm. Hit the cream cheese out of that one. All right, well, 45. (laughs) So we're going to move on to our next segment. Yes. um, Which is titled creatively, Yes or No. So, question number one. Would this movie be better with Kevin Costner in it? 
Well, in my opinion, I am of two minds, which is why what I wrote down in my notes is not exactly, but maybe. And I think that that's because the role that he, I think, most obviously would play, in my opinion, would be David Strathairn's role as the executive who, like, organizes the league, is kind of not sympathetic. You know, he does the like, well, you can't play in the league if you don't play in these ridiculous skirts, to someone who defends it, stands up for how hard the girls are working, how much they sacrifice, is like, let me take this over, and then becomes a fan. And then you see him. Another really nice storytelling moment is when you see him in the World Series, and he's not wearing that fedora anymore. He's wearing a little baseball cap. That said, he's, Straight Aaron's got like a sort of nerdiness to him, that I think really helps him out. And I don't know that Costner can really do that in the same way. And so, although I think that's the part that he's best for, I don't know that it would necessarily be an improvement. He could play Bill Pullman's part, but I feel like that might be a little bit, aside from being kind of undeveloped in the in the final cut, might be kind of a lateral move. So my opinion is that, honestly, if he were to be cast in this film, what I would want to do is cast him as Nelson, Marla Hooch's husband, because, and you know, casting is so crucial to storytelling. And I could see a world in which the sweet, devoted, dorky guy that Nelson is currently portrayed as is substituted by like this stud who loves baseball and can see the skill that the Hooch has in the same way that her dad does. So that's my answer. That's actually, that's a good answer. Uh, Thanks. For for all two of you who might still be listening, one of which might be a, a dog who was just left this podcast playing. One of our moms is listening twice. Yes, one of our moms <laughs> is listening twice. Uh, when Eric said that he might be playing the David Strathairn role, I sat back on the couch in shock. She did. My ultimate... I feel like I justified it, though. yeah. But my ultimate review is no, this movie would not be better with Kevin Costner in it. Like, and I'm very surprised that you didn't point out that another obvious role where he could be cast and maybe most appropriately would be cast would be as Jimmy Dugan. And that would be terrible because it can only be Tom Hanks. That's why I didn't even consider him. Yeah, but I feel like that's the right role. He's completely like, I think it's important that the David Strathairn role doesn't seem like an athlete. I think it's important that actually Bill Pullman doesn't really seem like an athlete. And I kind of think it's important that Nelson doesn't seem like an athlete. And I feel like what Kevin Costner brings to a baseball movie is like somebody who seems like they could be an athlete. Well, I think that I think that in terms of Nelson, it was really just like you could have made the storytelling choice and you didn't, which could have been a thing with the misogyny. Like, it's so good that she like finds her person and she ends up happy and married. But that trope exists where the person that everyone thinks is like, like cast off homely person suddenly finds their person and they are like drop dead gorgeous. And this could have been an example of that. I think it works great the way that it exists, but in my 
guys, I'm just really trying to fit Kevin Costner into all of these movies. And I really, I tried. And, and I think this sometimes is... it's okay if Kevin Costner doesn't fit in the movie. I think that's fine. We need to be, we need to be comfortable with the fact that the answer to would this movie be better with Kevin Costner in it might be no. And I'm mostly a no on this, but I did try really hard to find ways in which it could happen. I think that in each case, it doesn't make a better movie, though. Yeah, well, A for effort. Thanks. So next question, does this movie reference Babe Ruth? I don't think it does. It references a lot of players of kind of the next generation. I mean, maybe with the exception of, I think, Rogers Hornsby was a little more contemporaneous with Babe Ruth, I think. But it mentions him, DiMaggio, Bob Feller, Lou Gehrig. There's the great line that Tom Hanks has of saying, Rogers Hornsby was my manager and called me a talking pile of pig shit. And that was when my parents drove all the way from Michigan to see me play, which is an underrated line in the there's no crying in baseball yes, scene. Yes. But so yeah, I don't. Baseball? Um, am I wrong? Is there a. I, what I wrote here was. I think we see a shot of him in Hall of Fame, question mark. Oh. I think there might be an image of Babe Ruth um, next to Oral Hershiser, bitches. Yeah, the Hirsch. There's a, it, for those of you who want to go back and look at that sequence and see whether or not I'm right, there's a placard and it says Oral Hershiser pitches. But the way that it's cut off when we were watching it, I just read it as Oral Hershiser, bitches. Yeah. Uh, next question. Is there a dog? Yes. I believe there are multiple dogs, but none of them are featured. They're all background dogs. So in the farm game that sort of takes us into the main story, the very first shot, the one that says Willamette, Oregon, at the very bottom right of the frame, there is a dog. And I believe, I cannot confirm, but I believe and I'm pretty sure that in the newsreel that precedes it, showing DiMaggio and Feller going off to war, there is in the shot leading into Gary Marshall's executive chocolate guy starting the league, that there is an exterior shot in which, in one corner, there is a guy walking a couple of dogs. So it is a... It counts, folks. It is a very true, but not exactly inspiring yes to that question. So the next question is, are Yankees fans the main antagonist of this film? No. No. Not in the least. You know, maybe the most prominent reference to the Yankees in the film, there are a couple is when Marla Hooch's dad, and oh, that guy who plays Marla Hooch's dad. He's so good. Oh, he's amazing. He says in reference to her amazing talent, if she were a boy, he'd be getting calls from the Yankees. And also says that she has an eye like DiMaggio. And I believe that that is maybe There's not a whole lot else even referencing the Yankees. It's true. It's nice. It's a, it's a halcyon... Mostly Yankees-free existence that we live in this film. <laughs> and we already discussed a little bit about, you know, maybe misogyny is the antagonist of this film. And so partly, actually, I think that Jimmy Dugan is a very charming antagonist for some of the film. Yes, yes. So for our next brief segment, Six Degrees of Baseball, in which we discuss an actor in this film who is also in another baseball film. David Strathairn is also an eight-man-out 
That's right. And ironically, I said a minute ago that he doesn't seem like an athlete, but actually he plays baseball player in that movie. Yeah, not just any baseball player. He played Eddie Sicott. I'm so sorry. Eddie Chicotti, right? I'm not sure. But anyway, he plays Eddie. And Eddie was a knuckleball and spitball pitcher. In 1917, he had 27 wins with a 153 ERA. In 1919, he had 29 wins. And there's some speculation. I, I don't know a whole lot about the Black Sox scandal, but apparently some of the speculation about his participation in it is that Kaminsky had kept him out of the lineup so that he couldn't get a 30th win because that 30th win would have activated a bonus for him. And so he apparently was like, screw that. Like, if you're going to play by those rules, I'm going to play by these rules. So, yeah. Excellent. So do you have a favorite moment in this film? I do. I feel like you kind of negged that moment earlier. I really like the different signals at the same time moment. I I just have the problem with the fact that if she's a switch hitter, she should be hitting left-handed to a right-handed pitcher. That's the only, like, the scene is delightful. I See, I really like it as a moment where you you see Jimmy Dugan coming around. I like him kind of becoming impressed with the team, starting to kind of turn a corner in his drunken wallowing. There's so much good chemistry between Gina Davis and Tom Hanks. Like, you don't actually need those scenes that spell it out, because I think it's it's just there. And... I love how over the course of the season, they gain more respect for each other. They start becoming kind of buddies. You know, there's like that tobacco exchange, which is great. And I love that it kind of leads to this feeling of like him coming to the ladies and her being like one of the guys spitting the tobacco juice out. And I think that that scene is a little bit the linchpin of that transition. And so I, that's, listen, there are so many scenes I could choose for this, but that's the one I'm going to choose. Excellent. Yeah, I, I love almost every moment of this film. And it's hard to think of one that I don't love. And so this is really hard. There are a few that sprung to mind, but I'm actually going to talk about them later when I talk about my personal favorite performance. So here, I guess I'm just going to give another shout out to the John Lovett scenes. And I really love, love, love the shot where they're running after the train and Dottie keeps throwing the suitcases on board and then falling behind the door of the train and then catching <laughs> back disappearing. up. She keeps disappearing. And yes, she keeps disappearing. <laughs> and it's so delightful. It's such a good shot. So my least favorite moment of the film, though, if, if I have to pick one, there's a few things in a cluster that kind of bother me. One is that the bus veers off the road as soon as Stillwell puts his hands over the bus driver's We eyes. haven't even talked about Stillwell, that sociopath. That sociopath. I mean, why would somebody 
with their eyes covered, all of a sudden decide that they were going to turn the steering wheel. Like, it just doesn't make sense. And then the bus driver <laughs> leaves. But, like, is he really in a much better position walking down the side of the road without a vehicle? Well, he walks away with his life. I mean, I guess so. So it, this is capped with the moment that you mentioned earlier. This might be my least favorite moment. When Jimmy Dugan wakes up on the bus and kisses the chaperone and then is so grossed out. I don't disagree with this from a storytelling perspective, but it's mean in a sort of not delightful way to me in the way that like Jimmy Dugan being mean in other times is sort of delightful. And it really made me think this is the worst day of Mrs. Cuthbert's life. Like, she had to be on a bus with a screaming sociopathic child high on chocolate, mm -hmm. and then the bus driver quit, and then drunk Jimmy Dugan kissed her, and then was grossed out that he kissed her, and then later she was poisoned and was so ill that the doctors are theorizing that she's going to have to dispose of her shoes. Like, there is a <laughs> short film there titled The Worst Day of Mrs. Cuthbert's Life. Yeah, and, like, she is slightly portrayed as a minor villain or a nuisance, I guess. And honestly, she's just like a woman doing her job. Like, she did not make the rules of conduct. She's, I'm sure, representing the League. But she is a person who really does nothing wrong in the film. And, like, you just see all of these bad things happening to her. She's very put upon. Yeah. And I just want to acknowledge that... God bless you, Mrs. God, Cuthbert. God, God bless you, Mrs. Cuthbert. Yeah. Did you have a least favorite moment? I, I think it might honestly be that kissing moment as well. Again, I don't know that this is necessarily the case 18 years ago, but I think that some of the comedy that that plays for isn't okay anymore, and it feels weird. I have bad news for you. What? It's 28 years ago. <laughs> Oh you God. said 18 years. Normally, Eric is the one who's better at math than me. You mean it's not... It's, it's not, not 2010. It's not 2010? No, it's not. It's oh, not. my God. I gotta change all my Spotify playlists. Oh, man, if it was 2010, the Phillies would have Cliff Lee. That's true. Um, is there a scene that you would have liked to see? Uh, yes and no... There is, I guess... I mean, obviously, a four-hour version of this film exists. It's... Mostly it's out of love in that I love these characters so much and I would love to see more from them. But I understand it being edited down to a conventional movie length. I think that the scene with the... The scene that gives a nod to African-American unknown players was wonderful and like I it, it's such a perfect moment but I also wonder if there could be some way to expand that similarly there's like there's a little bit in terms of I honestly I would have loved to have known more about the stories of these various women so like god maybe my problem is that I want more Eric wants the four-hour version. He's come around, folks. Yeah, I want the three-and-a-half-hour version. So I actually had the same thing to say, sort of. I would love for there to be a scene with the black woman who is so good at throwing the ball. I think that it is very well done, but it's also in the middle of a montage, that scene. Yeah. It's not actually a full scene. 
And I would love for it to have been a full scene. Like, I'm definitely glad that it was in there, but I feel like our two heroines are from Oregon. And I know how progressive Oregon is because all my family lives there. Mm -hmm. And so, like, they could have a conversation with her about, like, hey, I wish you could be on her on our team. Yeah. Um, I also could have lived with a scene about Kit and Sue Ellen being simultaneously competitive and friends as pitchers, the way that pitchers are in the version where we get to establish that she is also a pitcher earlier and not a shortstop. So the next thing that we are going to get to is the question that I should always be asking when we watch a baseball movie, which is, hey, Ellen, who do you think the dreamiest player was? I feel like my answer is pretty obvious, but I'm going to let you go first before I go on the record. I mean, it's Dottie. I would be gay for Dottie. I would be pansexual for Dottie, whatever. That the behind the bat catch and the way she throws those bags on the train and even just the way she throws out a runner at second in the training montage. And in a movie with a lot of artfully, beautifully placed dirt, her dirt is the most beautiful. She's got some good dirt. I've done Playboy of the Western World twice, so I know all about applying dirt so that it's beautiful. That's an Irish play and has nothing to do with the periodical Playboy for anybody who doesn't But it's got a lot to do about dirt. But yes, it has a lot to do with artfully placed dirt. Yeah, no. Dottie. I am Dottie all of the way. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that I would have any possible other answer, which is crazy because there are so many, like, beautiful and interesting... See, this is the thing about this movie as far as this category goes, is this is, like, my time as a as a straight male to be like, God, this is the movie for me to have strong opinions on who's the dreamiest. I mean, you could have picked Tay Leone as the, as the Belle's first baseman. She's probably pretty dreamy. We just don't see her a lot. Wait, Tay Leone's in this movie? Yeah, she's like a... This sort of, you know, she did, I'm not sure that she has any lines. Oh my god! Yeah, you I see did her a couple of times. That. You see her in the in the sequence with the charm school as well. Oh man! All the same, there's that's I mean, actually still proving dying, my point but... is that despite all these incredible, talented, beautiful, amazing, like there's no, it's not even close. Dottie yeah. is the best. She's the best. Oh. As long as we're on the subject, I would also like a catch a foul, get a kiss promotion instituted in Major League Baseball once we have a COVID vaccine. Um, so All right. do you have a favorite performance? Gina Davis. Like, I'm just going to go Gina Davis across the board. John Lovitz is pretty close, actually. And also Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks. incredible. It's not... I almost feel like his performance is so good that it's almost overlooked in this film because you've got the iconic there's no crying in baseball scene. But he's doing there's no crying in baseball. Thank you. He, He he's so good in that scene. And I think that that's the shorthand for his performance in this movie for most people. But he does incredible work. And in terms of balancing joke, 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 joke with real character and depth and pathos, his performance is unbelievable. We didn't really talk about the kind of inspiration of that character. 
it's a little bit, uh, I think this might not be the be all and end all of it, but Jimmy Fox was a major league slugger who ended up coaching for the All-American League for the Fort Wayne Daisies for a single season and lost in the playoffs that season to the Rockford Peaches. And the other big and probably bigger inspiration is Hack Wilson, who is a kind of classic case of a player who failed to reach his full potential due to drinking. He was once the highest paid player in the National League. He was the home run leader in the National League for quite a while. He had like a, I think, a 56 home run season. He died poor. It's one of those very sad baseball stories. His son refused to claim his remains at his death, and money was sent by the NL president to cover his funeral expenses. His burial suit was donated by The Undertaker. It's one of those crazy riches to rags stories. That's very sad. But right before his death, Hack Wilson gave an interview to CBS, which was reprinted in newspapers. And he was quoted in this interview as saying, talent isn't enough. You need common sense and good advice. If anyone tries to tell you different, tell them the story of Hack Wilson. And that snippet, which goes on a little bit, was framed and put in the Cubs clubhouse, where I think it might still be. Anyway, there's so many, like, incredible moments and almost every line that Tom Hanks says in this film is a quotable line. But I think that that seed of the character is an important thing to to mention. Excellent. So for my favorite performance, which again is not saying best, it's just saying favorite, I could pick anyone, but I'm going to pick Megan Kavanaugh, who plays Marla Hooch. When I was thinking about my favorite moments, I realized that many of the Marla Hooch moments are some of my favorite moments. I actually, I love that scene in the gym with the maybe superfluous guys standing around trying to be fielders. And it's this really one-two punch of how amazing she is in that scene in the train station with her dad, who that actor is also wonderful. That scene actually makes me tear up a little bit. And then Marla Hooch makes the finishing school montage. Like every single thing that she does in it is gold. Every single thing that she does. Like do yourself a favor, go back, watch the finishing school (laughs) montage and just look for what Megan Kavanaugh is doing, even in a wide shot. Everything that she does, chef's kiss. It's beautiful. Yeah, she's so good. So we have now talked for a record-setting amount of time, which I guess I could have anticipated since this is one of my favorite movies Uh, of all time. It's so good. But for our next podcast, we are going to be discussing a movie that we have not seen, uh, which is Bingo Long, Traveling All-Stars, and Motor Kings. If you would like to find either of us on the social medias, my Twitter handle is Ellen underscore Adair, and my Instagram is Ellen Adair G. And I think mine is just at Eric Gildy for both of them, G-I-L-D-E. So lucky. Yeah, I, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. 
So thank you so much for joining us on Take Me Into the Ball Game, and we will not see you again next time. Yeah, but you'll hear us. It's an auditory (laughs) medium. (laughs) Bye, guys. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old bar.